MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. One quick note before we dive into today's episode. We had some technical difficulties on the audio end. When I say we, I do mean myself. And so you may hear a few hiccups uh, here and there as we go through today's story. Thanks so much, as always, for listening and hope you enjoy. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you. You are here. And that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. We are recording toward the end of June. Earlier this month, the Conjuring film series released their newest feature in the Conjuring universe called uh, The Conjuring 3, The Devil Made Me Do It. It's following the continuing highly, highly fictionalized and embellished adventures of the controversial paranormal investigators, the late Ed and Lorraine Warren. In this film, there's a young man who, spoiler alert for the film, uh, there's a young man who kills his landlord and later in court argues that it is not his fault because he was possessed by a supernatural entity. 
you're familiar with the Conjuring series. We were talking about it a little bit off air. Uh, the creators currently want to make it a franchise. They're already well underway. Uh, and they're basing it on various cases that the Warrens investigated during their heyday. It's got an MCU vibe. There, there are multiple. How many films are out now? Uh, so I guess there's two Annabelle films. One is like a prequel, and then and I'm not quite sure exactly where they fall in the uh, chronology. There's one called The Nun that is part of the universe, and then this is the third of the proper Conjuring pictures. So, what is that? Six. Yep, The Conjuring, Conjuring Two, and The Devil Made Me Do It. A bit of a clunky title, if you ask me, but you know, you got to put something there after the colon. <laughs> after the colon I, I will say to me the conjuring movies are also a study in like victorian era fashion because the lorraine warren character uh that was sort of her thing that was sort of her style she wears these very flourishy ruffled necklines and uh kind of plunging um victorian bodice type outfits and uh, i found it very distracting but it sure enough is is how this woman actually dressed and uh, perhaps one of the few accurate details from the real world that makes it into these films. Correct. I'm saying this, I'm, I'm not trying to dunk on it too hard. I am a, I'm a huge horror fan. Uh, today, we are diving into the incredibly disturbing and unfortunately true story behind the, the latest film in this franchise, which is this. That kid... That I mentioned in that quick and dirty plot summary is based on a real person. That is Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, spelled A-R-N-E. And Arnie Cheyenne Johnson is alive today. But who was this real man? What, what led to these events? And perhaps most importantly, why did he claim to be possessed? I would also say be prepared for minor spoilers for the film throughout. It's hard not to compare the two or even mention them in the same breath without. I just I think Ben made the great point about how ridiculously embellished it is. And there may be points where we mention how some plot just diverged wildly from the, the true story. So Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, his exact birth date has not been widely publicized, but based on the timeline, which we'll talk about in depth, he was born in 1962. Around that time, he hailed from Brookfield, Connecticut. By all accounts, Arnie is a pretty solid kid. Mm -hmm. And Brookfield, Connecticut is where the, the story takes place. So he's like born and raised there. Um, and apparently this murder um, whatever the, the provenance of it, was the first murder to take place in Brookfield in like over 100 years. So like a very small and apparently quite, you know, pious community there in Connecticut. And like you said, Ben, he was a good kid. He did uh, a lot of the things that kids do there in Brookfield. And he got a really cool job. He was working as a tree surgeon for this, this company called Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T Tree Service. Uh, pretty cool. I mean, he, he was a teenager and he had a job. In May of 1980, he moved in with his girlfriend. And you might think, oh, man, nice work. Ooh, la, la. Yeah. <laughs> um, but because uh, at that time he would have been 18 years old. So, you know, you know, you may think, I don't know, just depending on how conservative a town Brookfield is. And we think it's pretty conservative, at least from what I've read. Um, that might be a little weird. You know, move in with your significant other if you're not married. Well, there's so there are a couple things at play. So they call living in sin, right? 
yeah, yeah, some people in a more conservative side of the spectrum might call it that. Uh, ordinarily, this would have been any other case of young love, of bless your hearts. You you know you'll you'll learn the hard way. There are other fish in the sea, but have have a romantic time together. But there may have been another factor at play because the rumor is that Debbie and her mother wanted Arnie to move into the house with them because they were frightened by the behavior of Debbie's little brother. But that rumor, as we'll see, does not quite fit the timeline. Here's what we know provably happened. So he moves in with Debbie, but Debbie doesn't live by herself. Debbie is also around Arnie's age. She lives with her mother, Judy Glatzel, and her little brother, David, David Glatzel. He's 11 at the time. Uh, Debbie had another brother, guy named Carl Glatzel Jr., who we'll get to later in today's story. He plays he plays a big part in this, uh, but he does not appear in uh, the film called The Conjuring. And you will see why. It'll be very clear why he doesn't. So he's moved in. Live in with your girlfriend and your mom and uh, your, you know, your girlfriend's little brother. About a month later, it's June, and something strange begins happening with David. The Glatzels and Arnie later recall the trouble begins when the family visits a rental property just leased. They were planning to clean it up and preparing to move in. David, as the Washington Post reports, uh, saw a waterbed and he was freaked out about this waterbed. Everybody thought, hey, you're an 11 year old boy. Look, it is a waterbed. To go be cool with that. All right. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it was just the early 80s. I mean, waterbeds were still pretty popular. It was practically still the 70s. I mean, when I saw my first waterbed, my mind was blown. So a little bit. A little I bit. can imagine. But did you also see a spooky specter sitting on there, um, beckoning you to come hither? Not inside the waterbed, no. Yeah. So the specter of coolness. Yeah. I'm still fascinated by waterbeds. They set off my synesthesia. But David, is not on board with this because he claims that an old man, a specter, appears from nowhere, pushes him down on the bed, frightens him, and says, beware. Judy Glatzel later goes on to tell People magazine that her son saw, quote, a man with big black eyes, a thin face with animal features and jagged teeth, pointed ears, horns and hooves. And at first, you know, Arnie and his girlfriend are like, all right, you're making this up. You don't want to clean. We get it, dude. We don't like sweeping either. It's for the birds. Uh, sounds like the devil to me, guys. Animal features, pointy teeth, big black eyes, horns, hooves. I mean, come on. Textbook devil. Or a satyr. The modern Christian vision of, of <laughs> the devil is based on. Yep, it's very true. I just want to point out here, we're, we're talking about an 11-year-old maybe 12-year-old at this point, I think he's still 11, who's already, he seems to have behavioral issues, whatever that means to the family, right? Some Something that's going on with him, they're weirded out about, allegedly. But even per, perhaps prior to moving, then you, then you have something that occurs in that child's life, like a big move, you know, moving away from the room that you grew up in, the house you grew up in, the friends that lived near you, whatever other things you want to insert there, you can imagine that the family may see this as acting out in some way because of anger or sadness or, you know, depression in a child in a way. Um, but just here in this first moment when there's the introduction of 
another being, a man, a creature, something sinister in the house. I'm just saying you can imagine the family's initial reaction, but then it gets weirder. Oh, yeah. I mean, also, let me listen. I forget, like, Eleven is practically prepubescent. I mean, he's also going through a lot of emotional changes, and to have this happen on the cusp of, like, a big life change like that, I could see how they would think that. Um, and maybe that he was even making excuses to avoid, like, doing chores or something like that, right? Right, yeah. So it is important to say you know, when children are processing things, uh, they often don't have the frame of reference that uh, human adults may have. So it's quite possible that he just, he sincerely believed this stuff. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't trying to be misleading. He just did not understand how to approach uh, the emotions and or trauma he might be experiencing. But then things escalate. And David says, no, this old man is real. Uh, No comment on the cleaning but he vowed he would harm us if we move into this house. And then he also went on to say this old man, this apparition could appear as a beast and could speak what he believed to be Latin. And he was threatening to steal the child's soul. Incredibly important to note that no one throughout the entire experience ever claims to see the elderly specter other than David Glatzel, But the trouble continued. And just like, you know, the textbook exorcism tropes, the the child's behavior escalates. Things get increasingly strange for him. That's right. Um, He continues to experience these night terrors. Uh, He continues, his his strange behavior does continue to escalate. And then we start to see some physical manifestations of of all of this stuff um, in the form of strange bruises and scratches that appear on his flesh. And this is certainly a trope that we see associated with exorcisms and exorcism films or demon possession, rather. Like in the film The Exorcist, there's a part where uh, you see the young woman who's being possessed and levitating and like these slashes and scratches start to form on her body, like seemingly done by some unseen hand. Um, so this starts to really trigger thoughts, you know, within, again, this, this, this very devout community or religious community um, and a, a Catholic priest is uh, contacted who is, is brought in to bless the house. Um, unfortunately, that didn't seem to do the trick and David's bizarre behavior continues and it actually continues to get worse. I promise I'm not going to do this much more, you guys. But just again, the moment your child is like having unseen, unknown bruises and scratches on their body, you can only imagine the reaction of the parents. You're looking for someone to blame. There is someone to blame. That's the thing. Because it is very, there are a few medical conditions that will create things spontaneously that look like bruising, right? Or there are conditions that allow someone to bruise very easily, but those medical conditions are pretty rare. So Mm -hmm. usually when you see something like that, that means something is, something has physically happened to the child. I want to step back and say, Father Dennis is the name of uh, one of these initial priests. Now that'll be important later in the story, but blessing the house, which is not an exorcism, blessing the house uh, doesn't do anything. As you said, Noel, uh, from all, all the notes we could find, David's behavior uh, continues on this, on this spiral. 
his hallucinations, sightings, visions, whatever you want to call them, they begin occurring during the day. They no longer just happen at night when he's in bed. The family also claims they hear strange noises emanating from the attic, scratchings with no discernible cause. And David has begun to growl. He's begun to speak in strange voices, to recite passages from literature like the Christian Bible or I feel this is a little on the nose, Paradise Lost, which uh, I guess would mean that Infernal Powers are big fans of that work. <laughs> They're big fans of stuff that's like that features them as the leading players, I guess, right? Yeah, I guess so. You know, I guess, I, I'm trying, I don't want to sound dismissive, but Paradise yeah. Lost feels, it adds fire to what the skeptics will say later, which we do need to give space for. We do. Uh, and I have a quick question for you. I mean, when I was reading this and, and, um, that came up, it occurred to me it'd be a really cool twist if, you know, it was all him all along. And he kind of looked up all of the things that made the most sense or that would be, you know, seen as red flags by, uh, you know, others and, and, and those in like the religious community of being signs of demon possession. And it turns out it was just all a scam. And he's actually doesn't have a learning disability at all. But he's actually like a super hyper genius child, almost along the lines of like the bad seed. Inconceivable. I mean, that's the thing. One one thing that bothers me about uh, humanity in general is they do tend to underestimate the intelligence of children. Uh, children are some of the smartest people you are going to meet in your natural life prior to the invention of true machine consciousness. Yep, and they're also natural manipulators. I mean, again, no no shade on children. It's like a <laughs> uh, almost no. I mean, it's almost like a it's a defense mechanism or it's a you know survival skill to kind of get what you want. That's sort of how. That's what makes the most sense as as you grow up, but you kind of hopefully learn to use those powers for good, perhaps as powers of persuasion rather than, you know, cold hearted manipulation. But um, yeah, it's an interesting it's interesting thing to consider. Mm -hmm. And it's good that we're considering at this point. So within whatever's happening to David. Uh, if he is acting, he is very much committed to the bit. He's going full method or he's possessed or something else is at play because this behavior continues for days and days and days, for about 12 days in all. Members of the Glatzel family eventually have to take turns staying up at night with David uh, because he will spasm and convulse from sundown to sunup. And at this point, it is incredibly fair I would ask uh, why the Glatzels did not take David to a psychologist. We do not have the answer for that. I have a few guesses that are entirely my own speculation based on the research I was doing. Uh, there is the possibility of not being able to afford it. There is also the stigma uh, stronger in the 1980s, but continuing today, surrounding the possibility of mental illness. Uh, and then there's also the question of spiritual values. As we said, these were people who were at least religious enough to eventually contact the Catholic Church. About 12 days after this first incident, in the unsuccessful blessing of the house, this father, Dennis, reaches out to Ed and Lorraine Warren and asks them for guidance because he feels something messed up is afoot. And that's when the Warrens meet with the family and Debbie, and her mother, Judy, told the Warrens, look, we have watched, we have physically watched David being beaten and strangled by some invisible force. And afterwards, we've seen red marks along his neck. 
Yeah. So they're saying they were there when it happened. So you can imagine that the family, like you said, called a priest first, then they called demonologists because really it's their worldview. They want to take the advice of, you know, this psychic who is, a you know, um, Mrs. Warren, as well as, you know, essentially a demonologist and, and paranormal investigator in Ed. And they just listen, right? Any advice is good advice. Any information more than they have is good information. And Lorraine, uh, she pretty, pretty quickly, I don't know, gives them, gives fuel to the fire in a way or believes she sees something. So it really depends on how you choose to look at it. Uh, she says that she, she can see a black mist appear next to David, this child, and she interprets it as proof that he is somehow being affected by a spirit or a, a demon, uh, a, a malevolent, uh, a malevolent presence. presence, entity of some kind. And in the, in the film, um, uh, let's call it a movie. Let's call it what it is. Uh, this, this takes place when Lorraine brushes the elbow of the, the possessed David who is, you know, convulsing, foaming at the mouth. He actually goes after his mother with a kitchen knife at one point or stabs his father in the knee, I think actually. Um, and she gets a view instantly of some sort of satanic ritual with like a pentagram and like black candles and like some sort of black mass. Uh, that's, probably as spoilery as, the, as I'm going to get about the film, because I believe that is an element of this story that does not exist at all. Like some sort of, you know, uh, witchcraft, like malevolently targeting this family. Yeah, there is no quote unquote order of the Ram. Uh, this interpretation, another detail that the film has uh, embellished is that the the allegation of the knife on David's part was him running at his grandmother with a knife. So the Warrens say there's a problem. You know what I mean? They're, they're here in their opinion, or as they present themselves to help this unfortunate family. And they decide to perform what they call a series of lesser or minor exorcisms. These are, this is not the trope that you encounter in novels like The Exorcist or film adaptations of novels like The Exorcist. This is, this is a series of prayers. Most importantly, these prayers do not need the explicit authorization of the Catholic Church to occur. A proper you know, full on all the bells and whistles, Catholic or exorcism must be approved explicitly by the Catholic church. So instead they have these priests, um, the Warrens claim they interacted with a series of six priests and all uh, who are trying, trying to address this problem. And Arnie, our, our tragic protagonist here is present for each of these minor exorcisms. And, According to the Warrens, during each one, he started taunting the demon uh, that they believed it was inhabiting the child. Ulti side note, ultimately, they would come to believe, because Judy was a true believer herself, she had heard of the Warrens beforehand, uh, they ultimately came to believe the child was inhabited by multiple spirits on the order of like 42 or 43 non-human entities. That's Judy the mom, by the way. Ju yes, Judy Gretzel, the mom. And Debbie is the daughter. So the, the interesting thing here is that Arnie was telling the demon, this is another trope from horror films, telling the demon or demons, spirits, uh, 
leave David, come inhabit my body instead. And Ed Warren would later say, you know, we told him not to do that. You should yeah. never, ever do something like that if you're familiar with this at all. Unfortunately, Ghost Adventures was not uh, a thing yet, so he wasn't able to see that example of taunting ghosts. Right. Come at me, bro. Come at me, bro. Do something. Oh, boy. Anyway, Ghost Hunters. So according to Lorraine, David exhibited all the behaviors typical of demonic possession during these rites. He levitated, they said. He spoke of the crime Arnie would go on to commit, although importantly, he did not implicate Arnie in the crime at this time. It got spooky enough for the Warrens that they contacted the Brookfield police. This is the first time they contact the police, and they say the situation may be becoming dangerous. Ben, I, I, I hadn't noticed that detail about the, him sort of predicting the, the crime. Do you know what terms exactly he, he spoke of it in? Sure. That comes to us from Lorraine Warren. Uh, she would later state in interviews, quote, David made numerous references to murders and stabbing. Uh, we were sitting on a powder keg. Mm -hmm. So in her mind, that turns out to be prescient or um, precognitive because to her and to you know many true believers, that would mean that there is an infernal power speaking riddles about this other planet has. Or it's just a very stabby demon. It's a super uh, stabby. Clearly, the, the demon, you know, in David is stabby because he, he definitely grabs the knife. Whomever he's targeting, that is something that was reported. And I believe there's audio recordings of that. So there we have this situation. Luckily, at this point, the police do not have to intervene after this series of uh, three or four minor exorcisms, as they're called. David appears to be on the mend. But one hugely important note before we move on here as i said earlier no priest performed a formal exorcism on david at any time the and that's because the bishop of bridgeport refused to authorize a rite of exorcism uh, father nicholas greco who was the director of communications for the diocese at the time said they couldn't do it because the family would not get this this i can't overemphasize how important this is, underline it, highlight it in your mind. The family would not consent to the psychological test the church then and today considers a prerequisite for any authorized exorcism. And we have a quote from Greco about this that makes a lot of sense to me. It says, in cases of this nature, you don't presume anything. Through prayers and through observation, you make a decision. Lots of things we can't explain through psychology, and yet we can't explain everything rationally. What we're looking for is a balance. These things do exist. These things do happen, but not that often. Exactly. Exactly. And this is a careful line that the modern Catholic Church has threaded for some time, especially as... If you've listened to our Exorcisms 101 episode, you'll know this already, especially as requests for exorcisms and reports of possession have skyrocketed in the U.S. and abroad. There's been a steady rise, and it, continu it continues today. So if you're the Catholic Church, the last thing you want to do is seem like you are not credible, seem like you have not done your due diligence. If you, like, what if someone is suffering from a, a mental condition, right? They could be treated with drugs or therapy, and then 
they have injured themselves in the course of this rite of exorcism. You have to be very careful with that. And they do take it seriously in their defense. Well, you got to be selective, right? Because you don't want to be seen as just, you know, jumping in head first, thinking everything is demon possession, because then kind of makes it less special. (laughs) for lack of a better word, uh, or makes it seem less credible if you are just going in and exercising anyone that, that has, you know, uh, an eye twitch. Right. Yeah. yeah. And this, uh, just for a side note, I learned way too much about exorcism recently for a thing, uh, but <laughs> it's less sketchy than it sounds when we put it that way, but that's all we can say right now. But uh, one thing I learned was that there is a little bit more of a casual approach to some of this. There was this one, there was this one guy back in the early 2000s uh, during the exorcism spike who was teaching courses, uh, a course of lectures at the Vatican for like hundreds of priests who had traveled to Rome to try to, to try to like have enough qualified clergy folk to answer these calls for exorcisms. And this, uh, this religious official from Albania, his name escapes me now. He straight up told people that he conducted exorcisms over cell phone. It was in his 80s at the time. And he said, you know, if you're doing the right stuff, you can just do it over the phone. Yeah, you can send those rights right through through those communication that it works with Wi-Fi, you guys. Well, it's a little bit like remember the televangelist move? Put your hand up right. on the TV screen. Pray with me. Exorcism via Bluetooth could be the next thing. That'd be cool. Yeah. Well, hey, guys, guys, should should we take a quick ad break? Yes. And when we return, uh, we'll find ourselves at the scene of the murder. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. 
tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano. Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. So crisis averted. We're still just in the here are the facts phase. Debbie gets a job. She's grooming dogs at a kennel called the Brookfield Pet Motel. The owner is a really interesting guy. He's about 40 years old. His name is Alan Bono or Bono, if we want to do YouTube jokes. And he has uh, recently arrived in the area. He's been there for about six months. Uh, he's traveled widely. I spent almost 20 years running a plantation in Australia. The guy's got stories, and he's one of those people who loves to talk about himself and tell stories He all about himself. He also loves to drink. Uh, so he seems like a nice enough guy. He rented, he had an apartment next door, and he rented that to Debbie and Arnie when he hired, hired Debbie. So he effectively, in a very short span of time, becomes both Debbie's boss and the young couple's landlord and he seems to like the kids the teenagers who are around you know they're getting to be 19 at this time but debbie has concerns about her bow because in the days following this series of minor exorcisms and david's struggle she says that arnie or she called him cheyenne would uh go into a trance and he would growl he would say he saw the beast and then later he would have no memory of it she would add it was just like david Oh man, yeah, and and you know we remember from earlier in the episode uh, he did do a bit of a come at me, bro, to the demon, and I think he said something like get, like come come into me, leave my little buddy alone. I think is what he says of her brother, um, because they were close. And in the movie, you basically you might as well see that black cloud come out of David's mouth and into Arnie's. Um, but here it's a little more, it's a little more subtle. Um, but by this point, it does appear that he is behaving at least a little bit strangely. So yes, there's definitely weird stuff going on in that kennel slash apartment setup. Um, and at one point, this guy, Alan 
takes Debbie and Arnie and Arnie's two little sisters and one of his cousins, so a whole bunch of people, out for lunch at this place called the Mug and Munch. Mm. No and. That's apostrophe N, uh, apostrophe M. Mug and Munch. So while they're at the Mug and Munch, Alan is paying, and he's also uh, buying buy drinks. Uh, he, he offers Arnie and Debbie drinks, and they're like, eh, we'll have a little wine. We'll be polite. You know, uh, we're hanging out with our landlord and my boss. But then this guy is going pretty hard on the vino and they they get back to the house uh, as as we can so far as we can tell alan continues drinking uh and eventually you know they they have like a kind of uneventful afternoon arnie fixes uh his landlord's radio and the guy starts playing music really loud and, and just partying uh the fast forward through the afternoon, Debbie takes the two little sisters and the little cousin, a nine-year-old called named Mary. Uh, she takes the girls out for pizza, but as they're getting pizza, she gets a bad vibe. That's my words there, but that's what she describes. She has a, a, an ill feeling. Something's on the wind. And, you know, maybe it was their landlord, becoming you know increasingly inebriated as the day went on maybe it was that arnie had been so weird recently but there was something in the air and so she returns and she finds the landlord uh incredibly drunk and incredibly irritable uh, i didn't put these details in in the research but he's he's like he's moved upstairs and he's like walking around just like smacking his fist in his palm just like getting hyped up for something. The music's so loud. People like if you're this is one of those things where like if you're a kid and you've ever seen an adult who looks like they're on the edge of losing control, it is a tremendously frightening thing. And so it, it makes sense that Debbie and Arnie want to get those kids out of there. Yeah. And then the, in the movie, I don't think the kids are involved at all. It's just Debbie and Arnie and uh, the landlord who is just slamming like PBRs. And it's actually it's pretty comical in the movie because he's like spraying them everywhere. He's like shaking them up and like squirting beer all over the place. It's like total waste of alcohol. Uh, but I remember my kid who I watched it with thought that was really funny. Um, and it's it's done pretty well. The guy does seem unhinged in the music. It's like some classic rock song. It's like Fog Hat or something that they're playing in the movie. But in the film, he grabs Debbie and starts like forcibly dancing with her. And that's when Arnie has kind of a vision that 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 it's uh, it's um, Bono, who is the demon coming at him. Yeah. And again, that's I would call that some Hollywoodization, which is a very awkward word. I'll make it a better one later. But you know what I mean? They're, they're styling on it for spectacle in the in the classic sense. You're right, though. They were. They were hanging out. Uh, the kids are getting scared. And when Debbie and Arnie are trying to leave, Bono grabs the cousin, the nine-year-old, Mary, and he refuses to let her go. And Debbie is like by the car. Arnie's confronting this guy. The tension in the air is palpable. Arnie's sister, Wanda, one of the kids there, would later recall, all of a sudden, it just broke. I can't explain it. It just broke. 
That's all. She remembers hearing her brother again growl like an animal. She sees something shiny flash through the air. This will later turn out to be uh, the five-inch folding knife that Arnie carries with him commonly. Arnie stabs Bono repeatedly and then wanders away from this scene. Bono is gravely injured. He dies uh, a little bit later. Uh, he's been stabbed over 20 times, the court case will find. And Arnie does, isn't really trying to run away. It's like he just kind of wanders off. And he is apprehended by law enforcement about two miles or 3.2 clicks away from the site of the attack. And folks, fellow conspiracy realists, remember, this is just our recount of the facts. In a way, Bono's death is the beginning of this story because you see Arnie went to trial. Here's where it gets crazy. It does go to trial. While the title of the Conjuring film might feel like purposely schlocky, the truth is this. They lifted that phrase, the devil made me do it, from the media at the time. The media eventually was calling this the devil made me do it case. It's just one of the many details the filmmakers took from the true story to the big screen. Yeah, I mean, it's also a common phrase, right? Sort of like throughout kind of pop culture that would have been available at the time, just the idea of, oh, I've been a bad, bad boy. The devil made me do it, you know, like or the idea of any sort of bad behavior being uh, related to, to the devil. But the, uh, the press took this and ran with it um, because this was the first time in any court case ever uh, in the history of the United States that th this type of defense was ever used. So, on February 17th, the day after the murder, Lorraine Warren contacted Brookfield Police Department uh, again and claimed that Arnie Johnson was possessed when he committed the crime. That's what set off the initial media frenzy. And whatever their actual motivations might have been, Lorraine uh, and her husband, this was all caused by them. You know, the media interest was caused by them because they were known. They were probably the most high-profile paranormal investigators, I guess you could call it, of the time. And they, you know, the, the Amityville case and uh, the, the, the case that um, surrounded the, uh, the original Conjuring film, um, these were all highly publicized. So not only did regional press cover it, national press started to jump in as well, and it became a media feeding frenzy. Uh, and let's not forget that this, this was this was around the time of all of this satanic panic stuff where parents were looking for the devil in backwards masking and rock records in, you know, television and movies, uh, let alone a case where this could be the uh, the confirmation of their worst fears that the devil is, in fact, causing young people to commit heinous acts of murder. I can imagine this case still going this route even without the Warrens just because of the family's apparent belief that there's something going on here as well as the fact at least according to all of the other witnesses who were there Arnie was attempting to in some way protect another family or you know another family member like I can imagine it them wanting to protect Arnie no matter what actually happened like saying things that would that would try to protect him. I do think you're right that the Warrens, because of like they elevated it then to the national sphere or to the national level. What weirds me out is wondering how much the Warrens controlled some of the thinking 
of the family when it came to a legal defense. Oh, we'll get to it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I, the reason I put the, I really wanted to hit the satanic panic in my research there is that this, this is the cultural soil from which this story emerges and it is inseparable from that zeitgeist. Uh, but the, the funniest thing, yes, it's true that there were parents, religious figures and politicians aplenty for one reason or another, not always sincere, trying to fan the flames of this moral panic. This would be a mass outbreak, uh, a mass outbreak of hysteria. But uh, I do want to give a shout out to one of my favorite victims of the satanic panic, Dungeons and Dragons. We've got a lot of D players in the audience today and if you uh if you enjoy a good game of dungeons and dragons then you know that is the nerdiest possible route uh, a demon or infernal powers could take like if you ask someone who actually plays D, what are they going to do they're going to tell you oh you can roll nat 20s all time every other tuesday when you meet together with your friends haha <laughs> take that angels I, I just don't think it works but, but for further context in this, just to give you a sense of how real this moral panic was and why the Warrens were able to capitalize it, on it and why people across the nation reacted so strongly, consider a New York Times article, a contemporaneous source there. Uh, they noted a Gallup poll that occurred about 15 months before this case hit the news. And that Gallup poll showed that 34% of adults in the U.S. believe, quote, the devil is a personal being who directs evil forces and influences people to do wrong. So I would argue in a very literal way, more than one third of the American public would have they had got, if they had been in a jury, they would have agreed a demon could possess somebody. That's that sounds like a crazy fact to have, you know, in the mix in 1981. Right. And a lot of people listening to the show today were alive in the 1981. If you were in the U.S. at that time, third of the people you kicked it with totally thought a demon could possess you. Sure. Dude. And that was that was literally the next month. I think the murder takes place February 16th. And then this is March when that New York Times article comes out. So. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Ben. You know, we know that, again, belief like this has, uh, hasn't has really gone down too much. Even you can say that many societies are becoming increasingly secular, but the, the people's personal beliefs, I don't know, it seems like there are people who believe in evil without necessarily believing in a divine good, you know, which is always an interesting, I don't know what the word is sort of contradiction almost. I mean, it's like you, you usually typically those exist as a dichotomy, like as like you can't have one without the other. Yeah. What I was going to say was either dichotomy, paradox, um, some there. Yeah. They're usually a combo meal. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's evil without good is the, is like the, the burger without the fries or the fries without the burger. I'm not opposed to either. Yeah. I'm down with some palm frites. <laughs> yes. Agreed. This is where our legal beagle, enters the case, Martin Manella, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson's lawyer. Uh, this is the, safe to assume, this is the biggest case Manella has ever run across. Because what's really going on trial here, in a way, is the concept of demons 
and demonic influence. That is what is going on trial. Potentially, this guy is getting calls from across the planet and like not just journalists, other lawyers are calling him. Religious figures are calling him. They all want to know about what's being called the devil made me do it case or in a, a burst of class from the media, the demon murder trial. That's pretty sexy sounding, though. I'm not going to lie. Uh, and, and we had said earlier in the episode that this would have been the first time a, uh, a defense of satanic possession uh, would have ever been used. But that was in the States. Uh, and in terms of something that had gone to trial, he actually went to England to meet with several lawyers who had been part of two cases that did attempt to use a similar defense. Uh, and there's this whole thing where he was going to force the priests who had originally tre uh, treated, I don't know why I would have said that, who worked with David and the family on David's condition prior to it transferring in some way to Arnie. But uh, he, he was basically like, you're going you're gonna to come here, you're going to testify about what you did, or I'm going to make you do it. <laughs> I'm going to subpoena you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Let's see. Do you have a right to get out of a subpoena, Father? That's kind of the vibe I'm getting from that. And hopefully it was much nicer. That's a, that's a real question, though. I mean, I know that, like, priests can't be compelled to testify uh, uh, based on something that they've been told in confidence in a, you know, confession situation, right? Yeah, so, the only thing that can compel them is the power Christ, of Christ. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I saw Sorry. you smile there. But dude, would this have been a thing? Could they? I mean, because I know that there's, there's, you know, the Vatican, for example, is very tight-lipped about these kinds of things, these exorcisms. They try to keep these details and these facts under wraps. I would imagine that it would be difficult to force uh, a priest who who participated in an exorcism to to testify. If it's not under confession, then you do have the you do have the ability to subpoena people. I believe we are not a legal expertise show, nor are we a film review show. But the um, the the whole thing that he he's doing here, Manella is Manella is trying to set precedent. He's trying to build precedent. So when when what he wants to do when he goes to England is he wants to be able to come back and say in 1974. Uh, this demonic possession defense had been argued in the case of Michael Taylor in the Osset murder trial, right? He wants to have that precedent. He wants to have these priests come and say, like, you know, we are true believers. We truly believe this kid was possessed. This is not just some lawyer being overly clever. That's what he's trying to do, you know, and it would not be fair for us to try to guess at Manella's personal beliefs in this regard, it is quite possible that this uh, this lawyer themselves fully believed that this was the correct thing to do. So the the national eye is upon this trial. It begins October 28th, 1981 at Connecticut Superior Court in Danbury, Connecticut. Manella does it. He does the move. He does the thing. The news is going nuts. He attempts to submit a not guilty plea. Even though like they know where the knife is, habeas corpus, they have the body of the victim. He says this kid is not guilty by virtue of demonic possession. And therefore, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson could not have been the person committing the murder. And therefore, he cannot legally be held responsible. Mike drop. I mean, seriously, even the insanity confession uh, is is a wild one, you know, and it's difficult to to make an argument for a lot of the times uh, or temporary insanity. Right. Um, that tends to be like a big, like legal flex. But this one, holy cow. 
Well, yeah, and and in that case, in arguing insanity, you prove that at the time that that uh, whatever crime occurred, this person was legally insane, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's also like proving can this person stand trial, and it just there's a lot you can go into that. In this case, it would be was this person possessed? If this person was possessed, are they still possessed right now? Is it still them? Because, yeah, because, again, while while he's being held, there's no formal exorcism performed on uh, Johnson either. And I, I want to make a, a, a cool point. Anybody who has a little bit of free time and an interest in learning about the insanity plea, at least in the U.S., you can check out. I did a brain stuff video on this a while back. One of the reasons it's so difficult to prove uh, the insanity plea, especially the one you definitely want, like if you are pleading in bad faith, the one you really want is temporary insanity. Mm-hmm. Your honor, I had a crazy morning. I either wasn't me or I was the real thing is, uh, I think the real definition is legally incapable of distinguishing right from raw. So that's what it means when you find someone insane. It's a very, very difficult plea. So what, just to finish my thought here, what this guy is doing is the definition of like legal parkour. He's beyond doubling down. Oh, well, it's also like, I mean, yeah, hundred percent, Ben. And, and you're right. The, the, the psychological burden of proof that would be required to prove unequivocally that someone didn't know the difference between right and wrong. That's difficult in enough in and of itself, this would like require like the, some sort of proof of the existence of God and the devil and like pure evil and, and, and like biblical truths, you know, that we've never been able to prove. I just, it just seems like a losing battle to me. Like, like why would you do this other than for the publicity or, or to make a big name for yourself as a lawyer? It's, it's, it seems like impossible impossible to prove this it would be a pretty cool thing to uh get started right like clarence darrow level yes sir yeah i would you could see it even if even if you're not as the attorney there, like going for fame and and all this stuff like you could actually get something interesting happening so i don't know i just imagine it and also you know it's your job to try to get your client the best possible outcome right so this doesn't make this guy necessarily a bad person at all it makes him a professional just a professional who takes some risk right and they've got a lot of people on their side that they could bring to bear but yeah you're right it's putting the concept of god and it's putting the concept of demons and therefore the concept of christian theology on the stand uh, yeah. And saying, does this hold the same legal water as secular evidence? Uh, you know, maybe maybe the idea was we could we could push this to a mistrial. Maybe we'll get some folks on the jury who say, you know, as a person of faith, I believe in this, and mm. it it would be a violation of my beliefs to say this kid is guilty. Uh, and you well, know, legally, it's not a kid because he's nineteen now. But there's. There's one there's one big hindrance, isn't there? Because there is a person between the defense <laughs> and the jury. It's their whole job to be between the defense and the jury. Yeah, that's right. It's the judge, Robert Callahan, in this case. And I was wondering if uh, one of you guys wanted to, like, play Judge Callahan <laughs> in the response here. <laughs> sure. Uh, I, I imagine you would like it played incredulously, perhaps. Uh, so something in the neighborhood of uh, 
No court of law could contemplate this defense as there would be a severe lack of evidence to prove demonic possession exists. You'd need to prove demons exist. To prove demons exist, you'd need to prove some pretty heavy things about intangible entities, spirituality, and so on. That's a lot different from tracing fingerprints on a murder weapon or corroborating an alibi. Yeah, and, and just just for fairness, before anybody writes in, yeah, Robert Robert Callahan did not write that. I, I wrote that that's part, uh, but that's <laughs> like, but that's that's exactly the, you know, that that is an accurate representation of the legal, not even the legal, the thought experiments, the cognitive hoops one would have to jump through to even consider this case. So he's basically in a much more classy way. He's saying, "Get out of here." Yeah, Ben, I imagine he wouldn't have even given it as much credence as you did or even bothered going through the motions to him. It was just an outright. What? Really? Yeah, maybe. Uh, So Manila doesn't give up. So he pivots and he says, "Okay, all right. Demons don't work. I feel like this guy was really good at improv. He's like, all right, if demons don't work, well, maybe it was self-defense, you know, maybe there, there were kids there. Right. We know this guy sticks up for kids because he got himself possessed to save another kid. And then the prosecution's like objection. And then the judge is like sustained. Uh, you're on thin ice, Manella or thin ice counselor. <laughs> he ran into me 22 times. I, what can I say? Right. Because Callahan rejected this out of hand, the jury was not even allowed to consider the concept of demonic possession as a viable explanation for Alan Bono's death. And because the judge would not even entertain the spiritually based defense, media attention quickly fizzled away, shifted to other things. Uh, So, you know, there were fewer journalists watching this. After everybody heard the case, uh, the jury took about 15 hours over about three days, uh, and then they returned and they found Johnston guilty, but not of first degree murder. Not of cold-blooded, premeditated murder. Manslaughter, right? Mm-hmm. Manslaughter in the first degree, which is kind of like, I, I meant, you know, I meant to really rock that person, but I did not mean to kill them. And let's just remember, too, that this dude had never committed a crime. Like, he had nothing on his record at all, uh, and by all accounts was, like, a good dude. So I'm sure that entered into the judge's sentencing as well, since he had no previous record. Um, Ben, did you see the detail about how when they examined the body of, uh, Bono, the man that was killed, there was, it was very strange. Like there weren't any like tears in the fabric of his clothing. I saw something about that, but I I couldn't find enough sources to corroborate it. What did you see? Yeah, Johnson's lawyers were allowed to examine Bono's clothing and I don't understand this, uh, I, but I did see it in a couple of different places. And this here was from allthat'sinteresting.com. And then I also saw it in a couple other sources. Um, they said there was a lack of any blood, rips, or tears. And they argued that should help support the claim of demonic involvement. Um, but the court was was absolutely not convinced of that. But I, I do find that super strange. I mean, As in the injuries were caused sp- spiritually yeah, in some way yeah, or like something like that. I guess that would be what they would imply, but I also don't understand how you can stab somebody 20 times and there not be any tears or blood. Um, if that's true, that is truly unusual. Wouldn't you say and one of the primary witnesses saw a shiny thing, right? 
And if they're exhumed, if someone's exhumed, then that means that they've likely. Oh, I don't think it was exhumed. I think it was like I, I, I misspoke. They just were allowed to examine the body. Mm-hmm. OK, so the body hasn't gone through uh, embalmment or anything like that. To my understanding. Yes. All right. That's good. It feels like a reach, but that's that's a really interesting take. I'm wondering if they're just kind of attempting to grab as much evidence as they can to support their case, which again is what, what you should do in that situation. Unfortunately, yeah, despite these arguments and despite the, um, a wide, a wide amount of public support here, um, Johnson is convicted of first degree manslaughter, November 24th, 1981. He is sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. He only serves five. He's let off for good behavior in January of 1986. He successfully doesn't have any red flags on psychological evaluations. Authorities even note he's an exemplary inmate during this time. He gets his GED in prison. He earns some other vocational certificates. He takes college classes. He gets married. Guess who he marries? Debbie Glatzel. They get married while he's locked up. They were still married. Isn't that crazy? It's so crazy. He seemed like a good boy, like a really good young man. Um, But she watched him manslaughter somebody. But she believed that he was, I mean, she believed. And and, and just, just to wrap up the film part of this, in the film, there's this massive set piece exorcism that takes place in the infirmary at the, uh, at the prison. Uh, like it like blows out all the windows, you know, like dudes levitating his bones are breaking in that way that they do um, during, you know, modern kind of demon possession movies. I guess it's all goes back to the exorcist. Um, but you know, that, clearly never happened. I don't know that there's any evidence, uh, Ben, of an exorcism being conducted on Arnie while in prison, right? That was clearly entirely made up, not to mention the absolute grandiose nature of it uh, as depicted in the movie and the whole satanic cult, you know, gunning for his family thing. Yeah, no order of the ram. He was a model prisoner. He kept his nose clean. When he was released, he was required to stay under state supervision until 1991. So for 20 years, he's been totally free as a bird um, without that kind of oversight, had no reports of further crimes on his side. Since the events of the stabbing, he has exhibited no further signs of what the Warrens would call demonic possession. You can also find Lorraine Warren and I, Ed, I think, going on record uh, when he's released saying that he's got a good, he's found a good job in town. He's going back home and he's in a much better spot. So they, they did, to their credit, like still stand by him. You know what I mean? Afterwards, uh, then T- made for TV movies come out. Then the uh, there's a book that comes out and and it becomes this uh, entertainment blitz. But demons and horror films and entertainment aside, it is crucial to remember these are real people. Their lives have been irrevocably affected by these events. In one case, fatally. And the aftermath of murder and scandal continues long, long after the ephemera of media headlines disappears. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. 
knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was we'll it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, what do you guys think of the Warrens? You know, I, th- I think we all have somewhat differing opinions, or maybe not. Like, I-, I watched some footage of them, and all of the Conjuring movies end with, you know, f- archival images and, and footage of, of them and little interview snippets. But I watched an interview in particular with them uh, around this case. And 
I just got the sense that they had the same kind of media training as, say, like, a, you know, Jim Baker and, and his wife, Tammy Faye, had. Uh, but maybe not, not, as a, not as glam, you know, glammed up or whatever, or as uh, theatrical. But, you know, they knew kind of to say the name, repeat back the name of the interviewer. And it just they're, 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 there was a certain slickness to their delivery. And I, I don't know, I, I, I found it a little bit troubling. And, and even some contemporaries of theirs at the time, like the magician, the great Kreskin, um, for example, uh, referred to them as a, as a road show. Um, and that uh, this case was absolutely them trying to cash in on a tragedy. And that all that was really at play here was not demon possession, but was psychology. Well, it's tough to say. It, in this case, there is money to be made. Right. Not only w- did they elevate themselves by being a part of this, you know, media blitz, the book that Ben just mentioned that comes out, the TV movies and all these things, they are made in part with the Warrens by the Warrens. The book, there's a isn't there a suit, a lawsuit that comes about because of a book written about this? Yes, Matt. I'm so glad you brought this up. Uh, we're bringing it back around. Uh, the Chekhov's gun has paid off here. Remember uh, Carl Glassell Jr., the brother we briefly mentioned earlier? He and David Glassell, yes, that David Glassell, uh, came back in the public eye to sue an author named Gerald Brittle and Lorraine Warren after they published a book about the scandal in 1983 and republished it in 2006. This book is called The Devil in Connecticut. Uh, in the wake of this lawsuit, by the way, the book was taken out of print, but you can still find it at a, at a good used bookstore. Carl blames the Warrens for ruining his life and ruining his family's life, ruining his brother's life. His association with the case, he argued, just kind of forced him out of public life, forced him out of town. He says the book alleges that he committed criminal abusive acts. It painted him as the villain entirely due to his refusal to recognize David's actions as evidence of demonic possession. He further argues that the Warrens purposely made up this possession story, that it was a hoax that it was meant to exploit his brother's mental illness and that the Warrens told him this story would make the family millionaires while also helping Arnie get out of jail. So he's saying it was all uh, it it was all a con on their part. Uh, Lorraine Warren disagreed with Carl's claims. She says, you know, six priests have gone on record noting the boy was possessed. Uh, again, the church did not authorize an exorcism. She also claimed that profits from the book went to the family and phrased as though all the profits from the book went to the family. Carl says they did get some money. They got a sum total of $2,000 from the publisher for all, all, all the run of the book. And people ask, rightly, they're like, well, why'd you wait 27 years to talk about this? Glatzel said, I didn't know about it until a friend of mine brought my attention to the fact that this book was back in print and was also, wait for it, being planned as a major motion picture by a production company in Hollywood. How how does that work in terms of life rights? I mean, I guess because the case was so publicized, these main figures would be considered public figures, you know, public figures, um, which you're allowed to do, but you know, it seems a little bit sketchy. You're, you're all, you're, you're using their real names. 
I don't know. Like, like does this, the young boy, you know, David, you'd think that they would have had to change his name or something like that because he was a minor at the time and he, and he wasn't involved in any litigation. I just, it it just seems a little bit uh, unscrupulous to me that that, like the production company in league with the the Warrens, I, I assume a state since they have passed away. Is Lorraine dead? Yes. Lorraine uh, Warren passed away in 2019. Oh, uh, man. Yeah. This is why a lot of these cases end up being the subject of legal proceedings. Uh, we have to ask ourselves, I think there's no better way to close than to ask ourselves what happened to Arnie and Debbie Johnson, Nee Glatzel. Uh, they are still married and they have gone on record 100% supporting the entirety of the Warrens' versions of events. They claim the Glatzel brothers involved in the suit are simply trying to make a quick buck. Things are acrimonious for the Glatzel family, but we see these competing beliefs. And now, I, you know, I pause it that we pass it to you, conspiracy realist. This is the true story upon which that film is based. What do you think? Do you believe that demonic possession is real? Do you believe that David Glatzel and later Arnie Cheyenne Johnson were themselves possessed? Do you believe the Warrens are on the level? Have they, like Merlin in a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court, started to believe their own mythology? Are their powers real, or Lorraine specifically? Or are they themselves out to uh, beguile the credulous? Uh, We want to know your answers, and we also want to know your own personal uh, experiences with or beliefs in things you would consider to be demons or cases of demonic possession. We try to make it easy to find us online. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're Conspiracy Stuff Show. You can also join our Facebook group, Here's Where It Gets Crazy. Just uh, type those words into your little search bar, and it'll come right up, and just name one or the three of us, or some reference to something that we've done, or just something to make Ben laugh, and uh, our wonderful community of moderators will let you in. Um, You can also find us on Instagram, where we're Conspiracy Stuff Show. Yes, and on YouTube, we're Conspiracy Stuff again. And just want to say thank you to everyone who's been reviewing the show on all the podcatchers. We've been seeing those come through. We just ask if you have not done that yet, please do so. It really does help the show out. If you if you want to support us in any way, that's one of the best ways to do it. And if you don't want to interact with us on social media, you can use that thing, that weird rectangular thing that's in your pocket right now, me making giving you cancer i'm just kidding it's fine uh it's your phone you can call us that's right we are one eight three three stdwytk uh you've got three minutes you'll hear a little voice message telling you you're in the right place and then those three minutes are yours go wild we ask that you do the following things uh while you're going ham uh give us a your nickname uh, a sick moniker you'd like to refer to as most importantly let us know if we can use your voice and or message on the show if you have something personal you'd like to just share with the crew here that's fine leave it at the end and if you have a story that needs more than three minutes a suggestion for a topic that you really need to dive into with us uh, then don't feel like you're restricted to a phone call there's one way you can contact us where we are guaranteed to read everything that we get sent and that is our good old-fashioned email address where we are conspiracy at iheartradio.com
Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.